This morning we're reading from Luke chapter 20, verse 20 we're starting at, and it's on page 744 in the Red Bibles. <clears throat> Luke 20, 20. Keeping a close watch on him, they sent spies who pretended to be honest. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said, so that they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. So the spies questioned him. Teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right, and that you do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? He saw through their duplicity and said to them, Show me a denarius, whose portrait and inscription are on it. Caesar's, they replied. He said to them, then give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. They were unable to trap him in what he had said there in public, and astonished by his answer, they became silent. Some of the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second and then the third married her. And in the same way, the seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be, since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, The people of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy of taking part in that age and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. And they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. They are God's children, since they are children of the resurrection. But in the account of the bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise, for he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for to him all are alive. Some of the teachers of the law responded, Well said, teacher, and no one dared to ask him any more questions. Then Jesus said to them, How is it that they say the Christ is the son of David? David himself declares in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. David calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? While all the people were listening, Jesus said to his disciples, Beware of the teaching of the law, teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honour at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished most severely. Amen. Okay, let us pray and then think about the passage that was read earlier. Let us pray. 
Lord, we thank you for the time we share together now as your brothers and sisters in Christ. And we pray that we'd enjoy this time now to think more carefully about your word and and we pray for wisdom to understand it and willingness to put it into action. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in the introductory part of your bulletin, I've titled it The Wood for the Trees. It's a bit of a ridiculous saying, isn't it, to say you can't see the wood for the trees? But we've all heard that saying. It sort of captures an idea well. When people seem to focus on one thing, but they fail to see something else. You might have had situations where people have said to you things like, have you seen my glasses? And you have to say to them, uh, yeah, you're wearing them. That's uh, one of those wood for the tree or something. Or I've played chess against people who've made a nice bold move and I said, well, you can't do that. And they said, yes, I can. I said, but that's my piece. And they've sort of taken their piece with my piece. And Well, you know, you say, well, you can't see the wood for the trees. Now, this today isn't an issue in the passage so much of 2020 vision, but it's about perceiving life correctly, perceiving what's important to God. And we see Jesus dealing with that kind of problem as people are caught up with some microscopic issues in the grand scheme of things, and they fail to see the bigger picture about what's important to God, what God's agenda is for his world and for the ages to come. And so we see that Jesus engages with some people in three little parts, really, uh, who can't seem to see the wood for the trees. Well, at this point in Luke's Gospel, um, the tone's getting a bit more serious and the tension between Jesus and the Jerusalem leaders uh, seems to get more intense. Nobody's cracking any jokes. They're not sort of having a bit of a chuckle there or, you know, drinking wine and having barbecues together. This is, there's more serious issues that are on the boil. Like where Jesus stands with Rome and Jesus' threat to the Jewish leadership establishment. They're feeling undermined by him. And so opposition starts to build. That's what we've been seeing sort of last week and through the last couple of weeks. Jesus came to town uh, riding on a donkey. People were getting very excited as they, they had high hopes for his kingship. They threw their cloaks down and put the palm branches down and they sang. They said things like, Blessed is he, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And then the Pharisees told Jesus to silence the people, but he said the stones would cry out if he did that. After Jesus clears the temple, cleanses it from the money changers. The chief priests and the elders want answers. They want to know by what authority he does this. So in chapter 20, verse 2, if you're reading on, they say, tell us by what authority you are doing these things, they said. Who gave you this authority? And then last week, as we saw, he spoke about the parable of the tenants where Jesus really puts him forward as the son who's going to be rejected and killed by the tenants. And the teachers of the law, they could see this was spoken against them. And so they looked for a way to arrest him because he'd spoken this parable against them. And so we see that the tension's rising. Opposition against Jesus is building from the religious establishment. 
He's currently popular, fairly popular with the people, but not with them. And so it's in that context that we start to see uh, some engagements with Jesus where people are trying to discredit him. They're trying to trip him up. But in each instance, he's, he's saying, look, those are small concerns. We need to think about God's bigger picture. Well, the second point in the outline is uh, about honour and where it is due. The first engagement is with some spies who are focused on the topic of tax. It sounds a bit boring, really, doesn't it, to talk about tax? It makes me sleepy even thinking about it. But um, the spies are sent in to question Jesus because the leaders don't seem to want to take him on. They've noticed that he's pretty good in debate, and it seems to me that they, they think they're punching above his weight, their weight, if they want to take him on in a debate. In the past, they've gone away with their tails between their legs, and so consequently, they've sent in the spies. Occasionally, we hear about sending in the clowns, but here we've seen sending in the spies. And so there they are to talk about tax. Well, actually, that's just the surface reason, isn't it? The tax they're hung up about is the toll that's paid to Rome. Each person owed about uh, one, wages, one, one day's worth of wages. It was a denarius. And Rome, for its part, allowed the Jews to have the, the temple uh, and their religion. And so the, the spies raise the topic because in verse 20, they hope to catch Jesus in something he said. So they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. Now, after a bit of smooth talk where they try to butter Jesus up, they get down to business in verse 22. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, Jesus at this point finds himself a bit like in the, the jaws of a vice, where on one side, if he says, no, don't, don't pay the rotten Romans, then he would be arrested for dissent and handed over to them. But on the other side, uh, his message and his authority stand to be criticised by the people who, who loathe the Roman overlords and they, they don't want anyone but God's king ruling over them. And so these spies are forcing Jesus into a yes or no kind of answer. But Jesus does have some questions of his own. You see that in verse 23. He saw through their duplicity and said to them, show me a denarius whose image and inscription are on it. Caesar's, they replied. Well, by merely asking for a coin, which they probably pulled out of their pocket and handed out, they show that they already know the answer to their question, that they should be giving this tax to the, to the Romans. The image on the coin is likely to have been that of Tiberius, the Caesar at the time, and the inscription was probably Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. In the language that follows, we get to see what Jesus uh, thinks about this issue. In verse 25, he said to them, Then give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. They were unable to trap him in what he said there in the public, and astonished by his answer, they became silent. Now the point here is that although they're using this tax issue to get Jesus into strife, Jesus wants to draw their attention to a bigger concern than just paying the tax to the Romans. The language that he uses has the force of saying, 
Give to Caesar what's already his. But more importantly, remember that we're made in God's image. That, that denarius has Caesar's image, but where's God's image? Well, that's us. And so he's just saying, above all, let's remember that we owe our very lives to God and we should be devoted to God. Pay your taxes, but that still comes a distant second to our responsibility to serve God. Now, it's interesting to think about this idea of what it means to be made in God's image. Uh, the Bible speaks about people being made in God's image in Genesis chapter 1. And it affirms that uh, we're different from the other creatures, that we're made with a kind of dignity. We're made male and female. It doesn't matter what ethnic background you're from. It doesn't matter what you're like. It doesn't matter whether you're the school principal or the little kindergarten kid rolling into school. Uh, all people made in the image of God are special and are dignified. We're made to reflect God's glory and also his purposes in the world. And so people have been given the privilege and the responsibility to rule God's good creation under him who's the big king. The problem, of course, is that people tend to forget that they are the creatures and that God is the creator. People forget that uh, we've been made in God's image. He hasn't been made in ours. People forget that God's at the centre of the universe and that we've been made for his glory. People think we're at the centre we're at the centre of the universe and God's, God's there for us. And so Jesus reminds us to get our priorities in life right. Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. As we struggle to make our way in the world and even as we pay our taxes in the process or seek to pay them, we need to be keeping in mind the bigger picture that our supreme allegiance is to serve God with our whole lives and remember that Life and health and every good comes from him. So this week, let us be those who keep on uh, even remembering that uh, Westminster Shorter Catechism verse about what is man's primary purpose or people's primary purpose is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. We're made in his image for his glory and Jesus is saying that's the main thing. Well, there's some, still some skirmishes coming Jesus' way in a discussion about the life to come. We see that in verse 27 to 40. The authorities of Jer Jerusalem have been sceptical about Jesus' authority and who gave it to him. And now there's a different party that wants to uh, discredit Jesus or trip him up. And it's the Sadducees. They may have had their origin from a priestly group, from Zadok the priest, and that might be in their name. And they've got an engagement with Jesus over the resurrection. These people were made up mostly from powerful priestly families. They were an upper class group, and the common folk didn't think much of them. But that didn't bother them much either. They apparently had a reputation for being a bit arrogant. They were fairly powerful and filled one of the highest courts of the land, which was the Sanhedrin. That was mostly made up of the Sadducees and also teachers of the law and the Pharisees. They served in the temple, but the temple got destroyed later on. And so we don't know apparently much about what the Sadducees believed, but we know some things about what they didn't believe. And the resurrection of the dead was one of those things. 
And so they offer Jesus a bit of a trick question. It's a bit like that Jeffrey Robertson's hypothetical. They're giving him a hypothetical here. But the reason why they do that is because they're keen on saying the resurrection of the dead is ludicrous. It's ridiculous and it's absurd. And so they create this um, scenario, which might be, it's gone down in history as the case of the wife who could not cook. Did you get that? The, the case of the wife who could not cook. Let's have a look why. Um, in verse 29, there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second and then the third married her. And in the same way, the seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. Now then at the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? So that's why the bit of the jokes there. She, her cooking kept killing them. Anyway, it is a hypothetical. The Sadducees are taking it from the law that God's word provided provision for families to continue and a mother to be cared for, even if a husband died before the wife had a son. In Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 5, the man's brother would have the responsibility to marry the widow and thus continue his brother's family throughout the generations. And we see that kind of thing happening in the book of Ruth. Boaz wants to marry Ruth, but there's a nearer relative, and that guy realises his estate's going to get endangered, so he chooses not to marry Ruth. And so we don't even get his name because he goes down in history as a bad character. He doesn't do, take his responsibility on. But in some, they're, they're giving Jesus this scenario about you know, the woman dying and who, whose wife, who will be the husband, who will be the wife in the end. And they're just saying, look, this is absurd. But while they're heaping uh, scorn on this idea of the resurrection, Jesus wants to say, look, that's a, that's a microscopic issue that you're getting caught up on there. You've got to understand that things are going to be completely different. A new day is dawning. It reminds me of that song in Les Miserables, even the darkest night will end and the sun will rise. Jesus is talking about a new world that's coming. And he wants to open their minds to a much bigger picture. And so he responds in verse 34. The people of this age marry and are given in marriage or consent to marriage. But those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. And they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. They are God's children since they are children of the resurrection. According to Jesus, things in the age to come are going to be so different that even marriage isn't something that's going to be entered into. People will neither marry nor consent to marriage. People won't have a need to marry their brother's wife because there won't be any death. They'll be like the angels. They'll continue to live. And so it's difficult to know exactly what the character of those who are married now will look like in that age to come. But the Bible doesn't give us any concerns to worry about that time because that age is described as like a, a wedding feast, a good time of fellowship with God and his people. So it's not going to be devoid of relationship. In fact, the church is described collectively as the bride of Christ. 
So whatever the exact nature of that new age, the pictures in the Bible shed light on a wonderful time for all of God's children. But the Sadducees have got a much smaller view of the new age to come. The age that Jesus is bringing in by suffering for sins, rising again, and ultimately through his resurrection and pouring out the Spirit, we're also going to be raised with him, those who love the Lord. And Jesus is wanting to affirm the reality of that resurrection age to the Sadducees. Uh, some have argued that they probably didn't accept the other books of the Bible apart from the first five books. And that's perhaps why Jesus draws their attention to Moses. In verse 37, he says, But in the account of the burning bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise. For he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. For to him all are alive. So against his sceptics, Jesus affirms that even the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Moses affirms that there is a resurrection from the dead, that God is dealing with the living. So he's kind of putting them in their place and saying their view is too small, they need a bigger picture. Now there's some people who are watching on at this debate, probably enjoying seeing that they, they're actually sitting on the right side of the argument with Jesus, they're on the side of the winner. And so we see them in verse 39, some of the teachers of the law responded, well said teacher, and no one dared ask him any more questions. But at this point, when these people are following along and they're thinking, oh, good, we've got our theology right, Jesus still turns his attention to them and gives them a bit of a straightening out as well. Now, these next verses, Jesus warns people to live in the light of the resurrection. He's saying it's not just about having the right theology, it's acting upon what you know. But in the first place, he wants to expand their understanding of what God's Messiah is like. There might have been a discussion that talked about uh, whether the Messiah to come was going to be greater than King David. Some of these are tricky verses, but I'll see, if, see what you think of my explanation in a moment. So let's pick it up in verse 41. This is about the identity of the Messiah discussed. Then Jesus said to them, Why is it that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself declares in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. David calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? Well, as I said, the debate might have been about the Messiah, whether he's greater than King David. As though some looking back said the ancestor is greater. And we know that uh, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, that there is a son of David who's going to sit on David's throne forever. But Jesus wants to frame the discussion. He's not necessarily denying uh, that he, there is a, a son on the throne of David, but he's trying to show a bigger picture of the greatness of the Messiah, even in, compared, in comparison to David. And so he frames the discussion around Psalm 110, and he reminds the teachers of the law that the Messiah or the anointed king to come is even called Lord by David. And therefore the Messiah to come is actually greater. Jesus takes this issue of Messiahship 
And he settles it by enlarging their idea of what the Messiah is like. He's actually even David's Lord. In fact, as this gospel shows, Jesus is God's Messiah. And that idea includes the idea that the Messiah is God visiting his people in the person of Jesus. Again, he offers us a very big view of what the Messiah is like. One that we find that we can accept that God visits his people in the person of Jesus, but it's hard for us to comprehend. It's a much bigger picture of what we thought God is like. Jesus now turns his attention to the negative modelling of the Pharisees. They, again, seem to have this small picture view about what it means to live as God's people, and they're not taking into account the age to come. In verse 45, we're told, While all the people were listening, Jesus said to his disciples, Beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honour at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. Well, Jesus is encouraging the Pharisees to actually see the bigger picture of life than the lives they're living in the present. They might share the right theology with Jesus about the resurrection from the dead. They might be on side with him on that one. But we see that they're still obsessed just with this age. The problem is that they, they want to have praise from men. They want a pat on the back here and there. Elsewhere in, in the, the Gospels, Jesus says, look, if you get your praise from men, you've had your reward in full, stamped, paid in full. There's, no, there's nothing left for God to pat you on the back for. You've had your praise from men. And they seem to be obsessed with this age in trying to devour these widows' houses uh, and make the most of wealth in them, assuming almost that there's, there's no age to come. They're less interested in pleasing God than with pleasing themselves. And so that although they might have the right theology, they're not putting it into action. And we've got to learn from that negative model. Above all, God wants us to be pleasing him, serving him. Uh, our labour in the Lord is not in vain. And the challenge is to see the, the limits of this age and the fact that it's passing away and let the future reality of God's kingdom eat in on the present in how we live. Well, today we've seen Jesus trying to take some microscopic issues from these people and open up a bigger picture view to life under God's hand. And God's bigger picture involves remembering his sovereignty and remembering to serve him supremely. Even if we show respect to the rulers of this age and pay our taxes, we serve God with our first allegiance. It involves looking forward to the resurrection from the dead, even if that means having our minds changed about what marriage might look like into the new age. And it involves not just having the right theology about the resurrection age, but also uh, living in the light of that knowledge of how things are going to be in the future and letting that reality impact on the present. And so we make it our business to be those who seek to please the Lord and not to be pleasing people. We've got to learn from the Pharisees' negative model about uh, wanting to just have a pat on the back from people instead of, above all, seeking to serve God. 
Well, that's the challenge. And I must say, it's always interesting trying to preach on these kinds of things, uh, given that I grew up in a family where, uh, you know, even just to get out the front, uh, there was a a sceptical attitude that, you know, the person who likes to get out there likes to hear the sound of his own voice. You know, in some ways I'd rather not even have to do this kind of thing, but I've noticed that the job's still got to get done, doesn't it? It's good to be uh, bringing our attention to God's word, not to be, you know, pat on the back by people. We've got to seek only to please God, and that's the challenge. So let us remember today the bigger picture. We've been made in God's image. Let's serve God with our very lives. Let us pray. Our Lord God, we do thank you for this time we've been able to read about Jesus' response to these people who are caught up with, in in many ways, small issues. Help us to keep in perspective uh, the bigger picture. Help us to remember that we're made in your image and that we owe our lives to you and we pray that we would seek to live for your glory and remember that you're at the centre of the universe, that we've been created for you and your glory. Lord, we pray that we would be those who persevere with our faith in Christ and we give you thanks that we can look forward to the hope of a resurrection age at the end where we'll enjoy feasting with you in your kingdom. And Lord, we pray that we'd uh, let these uh, deep truths, these good truths, impact on our lives so that we live the right way now to please you. Help us not to be uh, seeking to please men and seek our praise from them. Instead, Lord, we pray that you'd help us to be seeking uh, to serve you. And we know that our labour in you is not in vain. Lord, we just thank you for this time now. We've been able to think about these things and and for Jesus uh, in his faithfulness to serve you and lay down his life for us. We thank you for the fruit of his work, that we enjoy forgiveness of our sins and a hope of life with you evermore. We thank you for this time now and we pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.